All right, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, grab your Bibles. You probably, most of you are holding your Bibles through iPhone or one of those Android devices. Um, so, yeah, click, swipe, whatever you need to do to get to Ecclesiastes. Um, we were giving out some journals. Do we have any more, or is it all done? One more? Okay, we have these journals available, and they are journals, that are Ecclesiastes journals, and so if you need one, um, let us know, and you can have the last one. Today will be your lucky day. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verses 12 to 26. And I want us to do something a little different to what we normally do. I'd love for us to stand um, for the reading of God's Word. Verse 12 of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man who comes after the king, only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also, why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and the striving after wind. Verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labor under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and the great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all, this, all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I said, is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. God, help us see and understand 
what you want us to see and understand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Um, it's fall, everyone, and fall brings with it many unique experiences, like the falling of leaves everywhere. Um, I have to do all the cleaning in my house where um, leaves go everywhere. Colors are changing, the weather's cooling, so many things and new things for us to experience, especially coming um, out of summer. But when you live in San Diego, it feels like summer, no matter what season you're in. But we're in fall, and my wife loves the fall. And um, every time fall um, starts, she gets all of our you know, decorations out, fall decorations. If you guys are in our community group, you know that when fall started, you entered our house, and there are pumpkins everywhere, and there are decorations everywhere. Fall is upon us. And one of the things that my wife seems to enjoy um, during fall is doing puzzles. Um, she, I, I, I think, I think, sport fall just in fall. I, I, I'm getting confused with this fall thing. I'm saying fall, but it's foul, because um, I know where I am. <laughs> but every time we enter into this season, she takes out puzzles and sits and and works on these puzzles, and she's pretty good at it. Recently, she finished a 300-piece puzzle. Um, she's also accomplished a 500-piece puzzle before, um, and it's always exciting seeing her in her zone doing something that is life-giving to her, especially doing puzzles. The book of Ecclesiastes um, is, you could say, the autobiography of a man known as the preacher. All right, the preacher, um, as we've been discovering in the past few weeks, he's been working on a puzzle. It's not a puzzle you get from your toy stores or Amazon or the kind of puzzle my wife has been um, enjoying working on. For a while, the preacher has been desperately trying to solve the complex and overwhelming puzzle of the meaning of life. He's determined to figure out what life is all about. Why are we here? What's the point of our existence? Why do we do what we do? And many other related questions. He's been on this journey for a while now, and he has looked to knowledge to help him solve life's problems. Um, he's also looked to a life of excessive indulgence and pleasure and luxury to find ultimate satisfaction and meaning and happiness in life. But to his disappointment, nothing has really scratched the itch. Nothing has really satisfied Everything he has looked to for ultimate satisfaction and meaning has proven to be insufficient. Has proven, as he would say, to be vanity, as fleeting and as futile as a house of cards or a puff of smoke. But the preacher, 
not someone who gives, us, who gives up easily. He is determined to continue searching for something in this world that will solve all of life's problems and provide him with lasting fulfillment and satisfaction. So, like I said, he's failed to find it in knowledge and with pleasure. Now, he turns to wisdom and work for what he couldn't find in knowledge and pleasure. And so the question is, will he find satisfaction and the ultimate meaning of life in work and in wisdom? We all know what the answer is. No, he's not. Because as he considers wisdom and work, he'll arrive at the same conclusion. He'll arrive at the conclusion that wisdom and work is what? Vanity. Like chasing after wind. And why we need to, the reason why we need to still look at this, um, even though we know what his answer is this, that he's going to give us the reason why wisdom and work is vanity, okay? And so let's first, if you're making notes, let's first look at the first reason why um, wisdom is vanity is because of the certainty of life. Um, Sorry, the certainty of death. (laughs) The certainty of death. Okay? Look at verse 12. It says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king, only what has already been done? Um, Wisdom is one of the most difficult words to define. Um, Is wisdom making good decisions? Is wisdom anything you do that produces good results? Is wisdom good advice? Who is considered wise? Is it someone who knows a lot or someone who is older? In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. Later in the New Testament, wisdom is personified as Jesus Christ himself. And so what is wisdom Okay, lots of different meanings, and we're not here to um, go on a search of what wisdom is exactly, but what we need to find out is when the preacher says he considered wisdom, what kind of wisdom is he referring to? In this verse, okay, verse 12, the word wisdom is used in its general sense. And it refers to human thinking at its very best. It's the kind of wisdom that I would say is super popular in our pop culture. It's the wisdom our culture trusts, accepts, shares, likes, reposts, and celebrates. Okay? It's the content you find um, being discussed on most of the popular Podcasts. It's that mantra and practical knowledge that is championed by the motivational speakers, life coaches, therapists, and gurus of our world. It's anything that is simply good, moral, and practical advice for daily living. It's advice and instruction intended to help people live their best life now. This is the wisdom the preacher sets out to consider. 
Um, Philip Ryken, who's an author and scholar, says this. Wisdom, in this sense, is not the deep spiritual understanding that begins and ends with the fear of the Lord, but simply good, moral, practical advice for daily life that comes from people like Benjamin Franklin, Emily Post, Oprah, and Dr. Phil. The preacher doesn't only consider wisdom, but interestingly enough, he considers the opposite of wisdom, madness and folly. Something interesting about this. You see madness and folly, all right? They're not supposed to be viewed as two separate words. They actually go together like two sides of the same coin. Therefore, rather than saying the preacher explored wisdom, madness, and folly, right? Three different things. It's best to say that the preacher pursued wisdom and mad folly. In other words, the preacher not only considered the best of wisdom, but he also looked into the worst of foolishness. Why? This makes sense. This should make sense to us because to fully understand something, okay, you've got to consider its opposite. All right? Um, you cannot fully understand the concept of love without looking at hate, okay? Um, same thing with light and darkness. If you want to understand light, you've got to consider darkness. If you want to understand what, me, what it means to be rich and wealthy, you've got to look at poor poverty as well. And so to fully understand something, you've got to consider its opposite. And that is why the preacher sets out not only to consider wisdom, but foolishness as well. And so, after his thorough exploration of wisdom and foolishness, the preacher rightly concludes that wisdom is more valuable than foolishness. Look at verse 13. He says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. And this is an obvious conclusion, right? It's definitely obvious because wisdom is way more valuable than foolishness. If you're wise, you're likely to have a better life than the person who is considered a fool, right? You can talk to me, guys. Yes. The wise person who lives by a budget, avoids debt, and is in a better, it's always mostly in a better financial situation than the foolish person who spends without boundaries and accumulates debt, okay? The wise student who is organized and disciplined is bound to get better grades than the foolish student who is unorganized and wants to play Fortnite and video games every single day. Don't do that at college if you're a student. Daniel Aiken says this, wisdom helps you navigate this world without stumbling because it allows you to see clearly the pitfalls and it allows you to discern the right decision in each situation. It's true, okay? The wise person lives a better life than the foolish person. But, oh, the preacher, as always, being very curious and looking at everything from um, every vantage point possible. And as he does that, he discovers and identifies a problem with wisdom. He sees that even though wisdom is good and best, it's not enough, 
He's about to help us see that wisdom, like everyone, everything else in this world, has limitations. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Verse 16, for of, the, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. The preacher is like, look, I have been incredibly wise. Okay, he says it, like, why then have I been so very wise? He says, I've been incredibly wise, and my wisdom has brought me much happiness and success, but at the end of the day, me and a foolish person have something in common. We're both human, and because we're both human, we're both going to die. Put simply, death is the great Equalizer, y'all. Daniel Aiken again says, So yes, wisdom is better than foolishness, but the value is only relative and it does not last. Why? Wisdom's gain over folly is fleeting because both the wise and the fool share the same fate. Death is the great equalizer. Welcome to church, everyone. We're going to be talking about death. Wisdom may help you manage your finances well. Wisdom may help you build wealth. Wisdom may help you climb the corporate ladder. Wisdom may help you help others become the best version of themselves. Wisdom may help you avoid putting yourself in compromising situations. Wisdom may help you reach your full potential and avoid debt and help you raise responsible and respectful children. Wisdom has many, many benefits, but wisdom cannot help you avoid death. No matter who you are and no matter where you're from, no matter how wise you are, you will die. Death is a certainty. Mesa Selimovic was a writer from Yugoslavia, which is now Serbia and Montenegro. He wrote this novel called Death and the Dervish, and it's one of the most important literary works in post-World War II, and this is what he has to say about death. Death is a certainty, an inevitable realization. The only thing that we know will be for us. There are no exceptions, no surprises. All paths lead to it. Everything we do is a preparation for it, a preparation that we begin at birth, whimpering with our foreheads against the ground. We never move further away from death any closer, but if it is a certainty, then why are we surprised when it comes? If this life is a short passage that lasts only an hour or a day, then why do we fight to prolong it? One more day or hour, worldly life is treacherous, eternity is better. Just basically saying, death is a certainty. I will die, you will die. 
whether we live long or whether we live a short life, death is a certainty. In 2016, after, um, I think, to, you know, near the time that I'd graduated from seminary, um, I bought a black suit, um, slim fit suit, really nice, and I bought it for the purpose of doing weddings, because um, I'd graduated and I'd become ordained, and I said, well, I, you know, I need to get a suit to do weddings. But little did I know that the first time I wore that suit was at my grandma's funeral. That was the first time I'd really experienced someone die so close to me. My grandma raised me, and so she was like a mom to me. Um, two years ago, Eleanor's mom, um, most of you know, um, passed away while we were here um, in the process of planting this church and it was devastating and we still grieve and lament and even as I'm talking about it now it's bringing back unpleasant memories we all have personally faced the brutal and devastating reality of death some of you several years ago and some of you recently death is a reality death is a certainty and we cannot escape it one author describes death as an unwelcome guest an unkind intruder it just barges its way in and brings things to a sudden and tragic end death is devastating Death may be devastating and tragic and painful, but for us who claim to be Christians, for us who claim to be saved by the love and grace and mercy of God as is displayed through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, there is hope even in the face of death. Just like how fires make us appreciate the presence and sacrifice of firemen, just like how the coronavirus, right, has made us grateful for our healthcare workers and vaccines and masks and everything, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything about how you live in the present. All right, in a similar way, the certainty of death that we're talking about, the reality that we're all going to die, magnifies the beauty and the power of Jesus' resurrection. We all have stories to tell of lost loved ones and battles with sickness and cancer. And even if you think the resurrection didn't really happen and it's wishful thinking, I would argue that deep inside you should want it to be. 
The whole idea of Jesus' resurrection is incredibly appealing. Why? Because it presents this incredible vision of a life, right? Our hearts long for. That is a life beyond sickness and pain and sadness. Because Jesus is not dead, but he's alive, there is life beyond car accidents, lung diseases, tumors, pandemics, poverty, child abuse, divorce, etc. These things are incredibly hard for us to come face to face with and experience and process, but they're even harder if you live as though this broken and dysfunctional world is all you've got. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a much-needed reminder that this life we live today is not the end. And if we trust in Jesus, not even death, your death, okay? It's not the end because Jesus is risen. Your future can be so much beautiful and so much more certain. The trials of life may dent you but they will not destroy you. This is why Christianity makes a big deal out of the resurrection. If Jesus didn't resurrect, right? Paul said, we are to be pitied. But the truth is, he did die and he did rise again. And because of that, death may be certain, but Jesus' death deals with the curse of death in this world that we live in. So, we just looked at the certainty of death. Now, let's look at something else. Let's look at the frustration of work. There's a writer called Annie Dillard, and she famously said this, we spend our day, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And so for many of us, a large portion of our days is spent at work. Okay, you guys know the statistics. You spend a third of your life um, working. Um, you also apparently spend 90,000 hours you know, at work in your lifetime. Yeah, surprise, surprise. But you didn't know that. Now you do. Work takes up most of our time. But we're about to find out from the preacher that the very thing we spend most of our days doing, that is working, because of death, comes with much frustration and sorrow. The preacher, as we've looked, was wise and applied his wisdom to every area of his life. Although wisdom couldn't help him escape death, wisdom brought him much success. 
if Solomon is the preacher, we know that he had this next level kind of wisdom, all right? He asked God for wisdom to help him lead and govern um, um, the, you know, his people, and God gave him wisdom, and he was able to display this next level ability of wisdom. It was awesome. And so if Solomon, if the preacher is Solomon, he had a lot of wisdom, we discovered that wisdom couldn't escape him, couldn't help him escape death, but wisdom brought him much success. He worked hard, he made investments, and because of this, he was able to leave a comfortable inheritance for his kids and his loved ones. For most of you, this is one of your goals in life. You right now are thinking about your death. Okay, you're thinking about like when I die, I want to be able to leave something, a comfortable and sizable inheritance for my loved ones and family. You're thinking about that now and that is wise and good. Your mentality is I'm going to kill it now, work hard now so that my kids, my family, my loved ones, I can leave behind something significant for them. This sort of thing excites you, and it's one of your goals in life. But unlike most of you, the preacher wasn't so excited about the idea of an inheritance. In fact, he hated the idea. <laughs> Look at verse 18. He's like, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Why did he hate all of it? Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. The preacher looks back at his life and he's super bitter about how hard he's worked. He doesn't like the fact that he has to leave things behind and he's upset because he cannot take any of it with him. He has to leave it all behind for someone else. And the other thing that frustrates him, he says it, is that he doesn't know whether his inheritor will be wise enough to manage his assets the way he wants it managed. All right? He's absolutely just freaking out now. Okay? He's like, they may be wise, but they could very well be foolish and squander and misuse everything he has worked hard for. You don't believe me? Look at verse 19. He says, and who knows whether he, that is, whoever comes after me will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. He's freaking out. And when my kids' soccer game, I was talking to one of the parents about this. I love going to Wednesday training. 
um, for my son's soccer because I'm working on my sermon and it's fresh in my mind. And Ecclesiastes is an amazing book for evangelism, by the way, all right? Like, if you go to work and they say to you, what did you do over the weekend? Say, I gathered with my church family and we are studying the book of Ecclesiastes. They're going to go, what is the book of Ecclesiastes all about? It sounds interesting. You can say, it's about death. I'm kidding. No, you can say that it's about this guy who was super rich reflecting on his life and how he viewed everything as meaningless and vanity. And you can. And so let me just tell you now, church, if you guys are not evangelizing and leveraging what we're studying in Ecclesiastes for evangelism and to get the gospel to people, what are you doing? Seriously, this is a great opportunity and a great season in our church family, okay? If, you don't, if you're like, I don't know where to invite them, you have life explored as well. Incredible reasons why you should be invited. So I'm talking to this, this guy, okay? I'm talking to him and one of you know, the kids' parents and I say, yeah, I'm in Ecclesiastes and I'm talking about the idea of inheritance and this guy, he's upset because he, he doesn't want to leave inheritance behind because he doesn't know whether the person that comes after him will be able to, you know, all of that, what we've been doing. And so um, I, he says to me, yeah, man, I've got a solution for that. Make sure that, like, I raise my kids to, to, to love what I value. And that's what I'm doing with my kid. And I said to him, you don't know for sure if young Liam is going to want to utilize your money and your inheritance the way you want him to. How do you know? I don't know. How do you know? I'm going to... No. Nobody knows. And this is what's going on here. The idea of leaving everything the preacher worked hard for to someone who may use, misuse it, makes him bitterly mad. The idea of an inheritance may excite some of you, but it frustrates the preacher so much so that he becomes consumed with despair. Right In verse 20 and 21, he talks about how he, you know, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with, will, will, with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. He's just like um, lamenting the certainty of death and the fact that he's going to leave everything behind and he, he's just worked so hard and what's the point, blah, blah. He's just freaking out. And he has a point. The first few pages of the Bible are all about how God created the world and everything in it. When God created the world, he created human beings, and the goal of our existence was to enjoy God, the creator, by enjoying everything he's created for us. Put simply, God created good things so that every good thing would cause us to worship him. 
We were not only created to enjoy God, but we were also created to have dominion over God's creation. This means we were created to work and develop and manage everything God had created. Are you guys with me? Right? Genesis. We're going back to the basics now. But we all know what happened. Adam and Eve did what they shouldn't have done and rebelled. And sin entered into the world and polluted everything. Sin affected our relationship with God. And as a result, sin also affected how we have dominion over all that God has given to us to work. Turn to Genesis 3, 17 to 19. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 to 19. All right, I know if you're using the journal, you're like, oh, that's the limitation. I'm sorry. <laughs> Grab your phone or something or listen. So Genesis chapter 3, 17 to 19, this is what happens. Um, one of the things that happens or one of the effects of the fall. All right, it says, God says, and to Adam, he, that is God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, but the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. A lot of people look at the book of Ecclesiastes and goes, man, it's such an odd, odd book. doesn't seem to fit in the Bible. Really? Really? Because, look, when sin came into the world, our experience of world work changed, okay? Rather than enjoying our work, it became challenging and hard and difficult, okay? And we just read Genesis 3, okay? And we're about to read um, 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 Ecclesiastes 2, 22 to 23. And as we read it, you're going to notice that it's so similar, there's so many similarities. Look at verse 22 and 23 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Okay? He says this, For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. What does this sound like? Sounds like Genesis. But it also sounds like the experience most of us have when it comes to work. According to statistics, most adults in America suffer from work-related sleep problems. Our jobs, our careers, our work and our responsibilities here on earth are extremely challenging 
frustrating and stressful. It's so, work brings about so much stress, it's rare to find someone who can't wait to get up in the morning to go to work. When did you last speak to someone who consistently wakes up before their alarm because they can't wait to get to work? Most of the time, there is a negativity towards what we do because work, responsibilities, tasks, all the above bring about so much stress and pain and grief. Whether you're a student or whether you're in healthcare or whether you're in the military or a stay-at-home mom, no matter what kind of work you do, it always takes its toll on you. And the thing is, even if you really enjoy what you do, even if you really enjoy it, there's some stresses at work. I met a guy, another guy, at some soccer game. You guys are going to hear, I'm meeting so many people, it's awesome. You know, and I was talking to him about his job and his work, and he was just like, man, I've got this awesome job I really love. And I was like, what do you do? He was like, yeah, I left the corporate world, and now I'm a teacher, and I see so much value in investing in kids. And I was like, that is fantastic, right? And you do meet people like that, but if I was to get to know him, I am sure he's going to have days and weeks where work is hard and stressful and difficult. And so no matter if you enjoy your job, right, there's some stress. Be honest. And this is exactly why the preacher describes work as vanity. Philip Ryken says this, if we try to find significance in our work, it will only end in disappointment. If you make your work your life, it will leave you empty. And so I bet you're thinking, this sucks. Is this all we're here for? Are we here to just like work, feel miserable about our work, die, and then leave everything behind? to someone who might just squander and waste and misuse all that our hard work has earned? <laughs> Could there be more than this? Is there some higher purpose to all this toil? Could it be that our dissatisfaction and frustration with the limitations and frustrations of work is meant to drive us toward a higher view of everything. And that's the point I believe the preacher and Ecclesiastes keeps doing, okay? Um, and that's the point of the preacher's argument. This is the point. Our frustration is meant to lead us to a better way. 
a way that Jesus makes available to us in this life under the sun. And so we've looked at the certainty of death. We've looked at the frustration of work. Lastly and quickly, we're going to look at the surprising gift of joy. Look at verse 24 and 25. So, so, you know, the preacher's been like, Oh, everything sucks. We're going to die, and death is the worst because I've worked hard and I'm going to leave. And then he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Author Philip Ryken says these verses are an oasis of optimism in a wilderness of despair. Okay, and the reason he says that is that so far the preacher has had a stinky attitude to everything. He has viewed everything as vanity and meaningless like chasing after the wind. But now, without warning, his attitude towards life changes a little. He's a little bit more upbeat and optimistic about life after going on and on about how life sucks. The preacher is now urging us to enjoy the good things in life. In 24, look, he's like, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Wow, he's finally cheering up. You know, you have that friend who's just got these negative vibes. He's just having a hard time, hard life. And then one day they say something positive and you're like, whoa, where did that come from? That's what I feel about Ecclesiastes. And so the big question we have to think about is what's caused this change? Why is his attitude towards life more positive than it's been so far? This is why. The preacher is beginning to see how different life is with God at the center. Let me say that again. The preacher is beginning to see how different life is with God at the center. Okay, until this point in Ecclesiastes, God has basically been absent, okay? We haven't heard about God. He's been muted and kept in the shadows. He hasn't been mentioned as much as you would expect. You're like, this is a book of the Bible. So at least God should be mentioned from the beginning throughout all the way to, no, we haven't heard much about God. But now, right here in verses 24, 25, and later 20 says, God is mentioned several times in quick succession. And if you look close enough, This is what you'll notice. You'll notice that the emphasis and focus is not only on God and gives us an idea of who God is, but on what God gives. The preacher invites us to enjoy the good things in life and then reminds us that every good thing in life is from where? Verse 24. The hand of God. (laughs) So, think about it this way. The things you enjoy. Your favorite meal, your glass of your favorite wine, 
Andrew Moss, thinking about you, a copy of your favorite book, right? Right? Surfing the perfect waves, right? All my surfers working on your favorite art piece, hiking the most beautiful mountains and trails and listening and dancing to your favorite songs and camping in the most stunning national parks. Whatever you enjoy, know that they are gifts from God for you to enjoy. But don't stop there so that these good gifts that you enjoy would cause you to delight in Yahweh, the one true God who created them for you to enjoy. The enjoyment of created things is meant to inspire you to worship the God of creation. The good things in this world are a gift from God. They have their limits. We know that they will never give us ultimate satisfaction, but the joy they bring is meant to cause us to worship God. I love what Ray Steadman says. He says, isn't it strange that the more you run after life, panting after every pleasure, the less you find. But the more you take life as a gift from God's hand, responding in gratitude for the delight of the moment, the more that seems to come to you. Basically, we cannot find true joy in anything apart from God. Remove God out of the picture, and that thing becomes a God thing, and any good thing that becomes a God thing becomes a miserable thing. Look at verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner... He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Here, the preacher makes a clear distinction. There are two people, people that please God and people that are sinners, people that displease God. Um, those who please God apparently are the grateful recipients of wisdom and knowledge and joy, but the sinner, those who displease God, there is no reward from their work, just lost. Their life is dominated by the acquisition of consumer goods they have to leave behind when they die. In relation to this, Tim Chaddick, my good friend, says this, we can earn money, we can earn a legacy, and we can even earn dignity, but the truth is that no human being can earn or create true enjoyment and deep satisfaction. Only God can provide that. While we deserve a good wage for hard work, enjoyment is a gift that we cannot earn. It's given to the one who pleases God. And who's the one who pleases God? The person that pleases God is the one who has humbly received the greatest give God has given to the world. And that is his son, Jesus Christ.
King's Cross Church, may whatever you enjoyed be enjoyed in a way that magnifies and glorifies your God. May whatever you do be done in a way that displays the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus. And so what do you do? What do you do? It's the question you hear all the time when you meet someone new. What do you do? Sometimes I like that question, and sometimes I'm like, it's going to get awkward as a pastor. I have had everyone that asks me what I do, and I say, yeah, I'm a pastor of a church. That's lich. I'm not exaggerating. I know pastors exaggerate, but I'm not exaggerating. They're always like, huh? Wow, for real? <laughs> like, yeah. What did you expect? <laughs> and then we have to untangle, you know, their perspective or their vision of what a pastor is supposed to look like. What do you do? Why do you do it? And may you live and work in a way that glorifies God and magnifies Jesus. So many implications and applications, but I will leave you guys to discuss that in community groups. Just before I go, I want to leave you with C.T. Stud. What a name, C.T. Stud. What a stud. And he says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. God of creation, thank you for the many ways you give us good things for us to enjoy. I pray that everything you've given us to enjoy would cause our hearts to worship you. God, I pray that as we worship you, we would become staggered and enamored by who Jesus is and what he's done. May who Jesus is, may his life, may his death and resurrection give us hope in the face of death. We love you, Lord. Work powerfully in our hearts and minds as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.